Our second lesson, I'm going to go over the uh, review of the Lord's Prayer, which we have been studying, but I want to show you that this time we come to the last of the petitions in the prayer. Uh, you remember that the first three petitions in the Lord's Prayer have to do with the hallowing of his name, the coming of his kingdom, and the doing of his will. That's tremendously important. The Lord's Prayer, when we pray it aright, uh, really puts us close to the Lord. But then the Lord also deals with those things that affect our daily life. I cannot extend his kingdom. I cannot do his will. I cannot hallow his name if I have no strength. And so he permits me to pray for my daily bread, for those things that are needful for my livelihood and for my life. And it's proper for us to do so. And he wants us to do so. But as close to our need for daily bread uh, is also a right and clean life in our relationship with him. So that means that daily I pray for the forgiveness of sin. And uh, then today we come to the prayer uh, which asks us not only have we prayed for the forgiveness of sins and has Jesus put with that our responsibility to forgive those who have sinned against us and warned us that we may not find forgiveness unless we are willing to forgive others. We cannot ask of him what we are not willing to give to others ourselves. And then comes, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some examples of this I have taken in, from the epistle to, of James. And so if you wish to follow these scriptures in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 8, and 12 through 15, and then James chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Uh, first, James chapter 1, verse 2. Consider it all joy my brethren, when you encounter various trials, a trial and temptation is the same word, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance, let endurance have its perfect uh, result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, without anything doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man and unstable in all his ways. And then verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. He himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And then from chapter 4, uh, just these words, which are 
very appropriate to all of us because as human beings we're so prone to evil. What is the source of quarrels and, and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, and so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motive, so that you may spend it on your pleasure. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us but he gives a greater grace, and therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Then he will exalt you. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. I want to use a part of a prayer for our operatory prayer that comes from a sermon by Dr. A. A. McLean, who used to sit faithfully in our congregation here and was a minister of God's word for many years. We thank thee, O God, that thou knowest our needs. You know the needs of all human beings and how they must be met. But grant, O God, that they may not be of such importance to us as to make us forget that things are but temporal. Let us never forget that the days we spend here are as nothing compared to eternity and that they are preparation days. We have so much to be grateful for, the chief of which are the blessings of thy grace, the forgiveness of our sins, the promise of sufficient help to live aright, and of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so, O God, we thank thee that we may bring these gifts and here put them before thee and ask that the Holy Spirit may supervise their use to the purpose that they may bring glory to thee. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus knew that the three forms of devotion by which we express our relationship to God in his day at least were through the giving of alms and through fasting and through prayer. Perhaps we do not fast enough in our own day and we ought to pay more attention to it. 
We've just given a part of our gifts to the Lord, but we need to think more seriously about uh, the gifts of service which should be rendered to him too. And then, of course, is the matter of prayer, which is our communication with God. And so Jesus warned us not to be like uh, those who use vain words. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I don't know how many times people have said to me, if this is true, then why should we ask him? We should ask him because he told us to. He commands us to pray. We are to pray because we need communication uh, with him. And then he gives us this model of prayer. Pray our Father who art in heaven. We have that special relationship to him. Hallowed be thy name. The first business we have in life is not the acquisition of wealth and not, just, and not the maintenance of our health nor the accumulation of good, but to hallow the name of God by the manner in which we live and by what we do. Last week I saw a film, and I'm so glad that I saw it that I want to see it over and over, and I hope I can soak up something of the goodness of that remarkable man, Sir Thomas More. What a man. What a man of integrity and goodness. And what a Christian and forgiving man he was condemned on specious false charges to death. He could even stand before a dissolute ingrate whom he had helped and who testified against him and to all of his court and say to that court, even though you have condemned me to death, I want each of you to know that just as St. Paul once condemned St. Stephen to death, and yet now today in heaven they are forever friends, so it is my hope that one day I will see you in heaven and that we shall be friends forever. What a man. He would not lie to please his king, and he would not go against his conscience. And he hallowed the name of God in his life and gave us an incredible example to follow. He extended the kingdom by his faithfulness, and he did the will of God. Now then, we pray for daily bread that we talked about, and so many people in the world are starving that this is something that we need to give special attention to, those of us in this favored uh, part of the Western world that have so much. We seek the forgiveness of our sins, and we also forgive, as Sir Thomas did, uh, those who have sinned against us. And then we make this prayer, and do not lead us into temptation. Now, there is only one word here for temptation, but that word means trial. And it, can be, uh, it comes from the, the same word peril or danger. Uh, the Greek word means peril or danger. When we stop and think about testing, 
Everyone here will know what tests are next week, our college students, because they take some examination. It's to see how much they have learned and what they are able to do. Testing is necessary. There is a certain type of test through which we go that builds up our muscles and expands our intelligence and our, our knowledge uh, that we need. A football coach who puts his football players through a tough scrimmage and who conditions them fiercely is not trying to hurt them on the practice field. He is trying to keep them from being hurt when they go on the, the field of play. He wants them to be in good shape. And so this is trial uh, that we go through in life. And that trying is for a purpose. And that's what that long passage that I read from James is talking about. Because those earliest Christians were going through fierce trials. But those trials were not uh, from an unloving God, but for a purpose. But here we pray that we will not be tested to the point of breaking, but that the test will honor God. We wish to honor him. Uh, I illustrate this sometimes by telling, uh, I've flown many times, as many of you have, in a Boeing 707. And uh, that uh, airplane, when it was being perfected out in Seattle, uh, you know it has four pods that contain Pratt Whitney engines or Rolls-Royce engines. And uh, when it was being made, it has the swept back wings. And to give you an idea about the safest aircraft, that's the one the president flies in, the 707. And uh, when that was first being made, there were engineers who worked strictly on one bolt that held the pod that contained the engine in place. And they would go out over uh, Mount Everett or into some desolate region near Seattle, and they would put it into a steep dive. And they would, what we call, redline it. They would put it into the, the danger zone and then pull it out because the idea was that that bolt was to snap and the pod of the engine was to break off. Now, that may not give you very much comfort, but it's a whole lot better for one of the engines to break off than it is for the wing to break off. Uh, that happened just a couple, well, within the last week or so, I read about uh, some airplane that lost its pressurization and the pilot had to put it into a dive and then pull it out, shook up all the passengers. One of the engines broke off and fell away to the ground. I hope it didn't hit anybody. But uh, uh, it saved the passengers that were in the airplane. Well, that's a form of testing, and that testing is meant uh, uh, to make better and to make us better, too. And so sometimes the trials that we are permitted to go to, we pray that we will not be pushed beyond the test, but when we go through uh, cancer, when we go through hard trials, that God will use even these things uh, to uh, his own purposes and to his own glory that he will uh, deliver us uh, in that time of temptation uh, that we will not be broken. Now, 
your temptation also comes uh, another time. You remember in John chapter 6, Jesus tempted his disciples in a good sense. He tempted them when there, there was a great crowd of people and they didn't know whether the, how they were going to be able to feed them. So Jesus said, how are we going to feed this crowd? And Andrew brought up what seemed like a ridiculous suggestion. He said, there is a little boy here and he has five little barley cakes and two fishes. And then he realized that they must have thought he was dumb for suggesting it. So he said, but what are they among so many? You see, it was put to a test. But Jesus made that the most memorable miracle that he performed. All four records of the gospel record the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, it, it was a tremendous uh, thing that was happening. And so it was a test that was put there in a, a test uh, that was to accomplish good and did accomplish good. Now there is another form of temptation. The temptations that come by the world and the flesh and the devil. We see Jesus in the scripture which Tony Whalen read a moment ago, tempted of the devil. And three times Jesus answers Satan by citations of scripture. He knows that Jesus has 40 days and 40 nights gone without food. So much so that even the little stones would be like a mirage of a cake of bread or something. And, and so Satan knows he has power and he says, why don't you turn this into a cake of bread and eat it? And Jesus cites scripture, man shall not live by bread alone. And we find that out in life. Hunger is a great thing, but man cannot live just by bread alone. He needs more. He needs a right relationship with God. He needs love. He needs companionship. He needs dignity. And these are things which many people in the world are denied. And so here is one of the tests that comes and Jesus answers with scripture. By the way, uh, I have often pointed out from Dostoevsky's uh, uh, Brothers Karamazov that the Grand Inquisitor who uh, so terribly, an old, old man who has betrayed his faith in God and in Christ and yet is a big dignitary in the church and that can still happen. He really thought that the devil was right and that what should have been done was the feeding. And that then Jesus would have had people to follow him. And Jesus had to deal uh, with the devil and he dealt with him according to the scriptures. And then, you know, we think about strong desires. When you hear temptation, everyone thinks about sex. But I'll guarantee you, if you weighed 78 pounds and you were normally a 190 pounder and you were hungry, sex wouldn't be much on your mind. Hunger and thirst would be greatly on your mind. And so that's a fierce test that's brought there. 
And you remember that the devil also tempted Jesus according to the kingdoms of the world. He led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time in some visionary experience and said to him, now you want to win the whole world and Christians are commanded to take the gospel to the ends of the world. But don't do it in the devil's way. God has his way of accomplishing his work. We are to do God's work in God's way for God's glory. And we make a terrible mistake and an awful sin when we try to outwit God and think that we can use the devil's way to reach the world. And so the devil says, I know what's on your mind, far more than bread. What's on your mind is reaching the whole world. Will you bow down and worship me and then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You can have Rome, you can have Persia, you can have China, you can have everything. I'll give it all to you. And Jesus said, Satan, be gone. Get behind me, Satan. Because the scripture says, I am to worship God alone and him only am I to serve. Satan wanted him to be a trickster, to razzle-dazzle people by going up and jumping down from the temple and floating down, and that that would attract people. And Jesus resisted the grandstand approach, which seems to be so much of what a great deal of popularizing of the gospel gets into now. And we better be very careful for that. It's mighty easy to get our glory and God's glory confused and uh, when we do that, we get into trouble. And so this is temptation uh, of the sort that we want to uh, evade and are asking him to give us the power to see through and to uh, overcome and to overcome it quickly. And you remember when James uh, teaches about this, he wants us to know that we are not to yield to evil temptation and say that uh, God has tempted us to do evil because God will not tempt us to do uh, evil. Now, we are human beings and we are living in a real world, and so we're going to be tempted all the time, and that temptation comes to us and we have to deal with it. Oh, my goodness, the truth always comes out. This last week... Uh, because we were down in Florida, I was able to read some things that I can't always read like I want to. Uh, many of you know that when I was first converted and came to Christ, the person who helped me the most was an English teacher out in West Texas. Her brother had been the commander-in-chief of the United States fleet, the fleet admiral, back when the Atlantic and the Pacific fleet were one. He came to visit her when I lived in her home. And I'll never forget the conversations that I had with him uh, because uh, he fascinated me. He had been the commander-in-chief of the United States fleet. And in February of 1941, Mr. Roosevelt summarily fired him as the commander-in-chief of the fleet because he did not wish to keep the fleet bottled up in Pearl Harbor, but wanted the fleet uh, dispersed. He wanted to keep only a part of the fleet in Pearl Harbor at a time, 
and the rest of it on the go. Well, now then, a book is serviced, surfaced under the Freedom of Information Act by John Toland, the distinguished historian, that shows that the people at Pearl Harbor, Admiral Kimmel, who took Admiral Richardson's place, Admiral Richardson was my friend, poor Admiral Kimmel died with heartbreak trying to defend himself because he never received notice that the surprise attack was coming and our intelligence people did know that it was coming and yet they were not warned and 3,000 men were killed. We think of Watergate as a terrible thing and stealing the democratic secrets was really awful but it's nothing to compare with uh, Pearl Harbor but the truth will come out and so the truth comes. And so this is why we are to be persons of integrity and persons of truth. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Uh, the people who lied in that inquiry that came out later. And now the truth surfaces. Uh, and yet we are not to be people who give in to this. We are not to allow uh, that temptation to lead us to do what is wrong. Uh, now, how else are we tempted? And what else happens to us in life that leads us uh, in the wrong way? All kinds of evil come from it. Um, the evil of racism that exploits other people simply because of the pigmentation of their skin. The evil that causes us to hurt others. These are things which God does not want us to do as his children and those who are related to him as sons of God by the new birth and who are being led by the Holy Spirit. And when we are led by the Holy Spirit, then we are led to overcome this temptation. I have back in my study a little book I meant to bring out uh, called Thine is the Kingdom, and it's a, a, a book on the Lord's Prayer. It was written by Hugh Redwood, who worked in the slums of London. And when he talks about deliver us from the evil one, he talks of the people in the gin mills and the slum sections of London that he worked, and how these people are exploited, how people are tempted to get rich, and they go in that way, and they exploit people to evil. And uh, if our friends from prayer meeting will forgive me, this week I was greatly moved. I had heard, I'd seen a part of the television film on the Elephant Man, and some of you I'm sure saw it too, but the TV film was not, uh, uh, or the motion picture was not exactly as true to uh, what really happened. It was good, but not uh, true to it completely. Sir Frederick Treves was one of the great medical men in uh, uh, medical history. He taught in an East London hospital. And at the end of the last century, uh, he had an unusual experience. He worked in a London hospital. He taught there, and in 1884, near the hospital in a greengrocer's shop, that's a produce shop, he discovered right across the street from the hospital a creature, a human being, 
who came to be known in the London society at the end of that century as the Elephant Man. Treves described him as the most disgusting specimen of humanity he had ever seen. He had an enormous misshapen head with a bone mass projecting from his brow and upper jaw giving him an elephantine appearance. He had spongy, foul-smelling skin like fungus or brown cauliflower that hung like bags from his back and chest and head and right arm. His legs were deformed. His feet were bulbous. He had hip disease. His face was expressionless. His feet, uh, his speech was spluttering and almost unintelligible. And yet, strangely enough, his left arm had been unaffected by these deformities, and they were as shapely and as delicate as a woman. And now to add to the suffering of this poor man, this is what society does. He was treated like an animal. He was hawked. That is, they called people to come and see him. He was hawked from fair to fair and circus to circus, where he was exhibited as a curiosity, and people paid tuppence, two pennies a look. And Sir Frederick Treves wrote that he was shunned like a leper, housed like a wild beast, the only view of the world that he got was from a peephole in the circus wagon that he was carried from town to town in. He received less kindness than a dog and was terrified by eyes that stared at him. And he would creep into a dark corner and hide. But now listen to what happens. Treves discovered that he was a human being that his name was John Merrick. He was 21 years old. He was highly intelligent. He had an acute sensibility and a romantic imagination. And when he was abandoned by the circus showman Treves, the doctor, had him accommodated and cared for in a private room in the back of the teaching hospital in London where he worked. And three and a half years later, he died in his sleep. When the first woman visited John Merrick, she smiled at him. She ignored his deformity, and she shook his hand. He was so overcome with emotion that he broke down in uncontrollable sobbing. But that began a transformation of his whole world. He received many notable visitors, including Queen Alexandria, who was at that time Princess of Wales. He gradually changed from a haunted thing into a man, into a human being. But actually, he was a man all the time. But it was Treves' remarkable reverence for his dignity as a human being which enabled poor John Merrick to lift up his misshapen head and to gain some semblance of human self-respect as a man made in the image of God. Now what has that to do with the Lord's Prayer? 
that we are not to yield to the temptation of the devil to despise other people, but that if a man of science, a doctor in a teaching hospital in London, could show to a poor, misshapen piece of humanity kindness that changed him, then we who claim to love Jesus can go to the leper and see that he is helped, as many Christian doctors have done. And through restorative surgery, we can extend that kindness. I went into the hospital room of a woman suffering from cancer on Friday, and I saw a sweet lady from this community who has gone the second mile and the third mile and the fourth mile and the fifth mile to show the love of Jesus to someone who suffers and who is in pain. And that sweet lady's eyes glowed with the love of Jesus because she was helped when others showed her that love too. So we are not to yield to the temptation and the stresses of life that would bend us towards selfishness like that beastly Henry VIII but we could be like Sir Thomas More. We could be like Jesus wants us to be. We could be like James taught us to be from his epistles. And how many quarrels would this stop in the church? How much more good could be done? We could see great good accomplished for God and great mercy extended in his name. We don't need to submit to sin. Since, the, let, me listen, let me read you just one statement. Take the bulletin home today and read it, and you'll have a little lesson in this whole thing. This is what William Temple of the Church of England wrote about sin. We know it is morally wrong. We know it is self-destructive. And yet, rather than pluck out our right eye, Rather than even close it, we fling our whole body into hell. It's no use trying to find reasons for doing this. Reason is all on the other side, as we know quite well when we act. We do not even think the present good greater than the more remote. In fact, we do not think it all. We just say, here goes. But the Christian stops and thinks about the glory of Christ and is willing to yield to his glory. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment, and since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh cease not to assail us, we pray that you will preserve and strengthen us by the power of the Holy Spirit so that we may be able to overcome in this spiritual warfare and constantly and strenuously resist our foes until at last we obtain complete victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, 
working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be all glory, honor, dominion, and power, both now and forevermore.